And I'd like to start, I think, with uh, what took place with the floods, because I feel like a lot of people uh, became aware of the Fraser Valley current. Uh, it became a primary news source for many people living in the Fraser Valley. And I think it also sheds light on how important local journalism is uh, when events like this take place in, in in terms of informing citizens and allowing people to prepare. Um, I had the opportunity to see some of the amazing feedback you received during that period. And people were saying we evacuated earlier uh, as a consequence of the information we were getting from the Fraser Valley Current um, and perhaps other news sources. But could you could you walk us through what take, took place? Because I think it's important that we we understand kind of the lineage of what took place and, and your involvement because it sounds like there was a lot of work that went into reporting uh, what was taking place each day. So could you start us perhaps from the beginning, um, those first few days of what was going on? Yeah, I think one of the things to keep in mind is that, um, and just in terms of both how we produced our journalism during that time and just in general about that event, is that um, we like we didn't see the water coming over the border I didn't see the water coming the border. I didn't um, wasn't spending like particularly a lot. And when I say a lot, I mean I wasn't. I didn't have any specific way to know this. A lot of it comes down to the fact that this event is something that um, had happened before, just on a different scale, um, and had been talked about quite extensively relatively extensively occasionally let's say um in the last five or six years um within the city of abbotsford and specifically was addressed by their city hall uh occasionally and they were they were working on on addressing it to their credit um they didn't get to it in time because <laughs> rivers fled on their own schedule i think um but so as a reporter in Abbotsford, I was um, just as part of my day-to-day -day job. I had been watching those council meetings and looking at city documents. And as they were considering um, the threat from the Nooksack, and as I remember their fire chief telling council at one point that it was the thing that kept him up at night. Um, it's something that interested me, but also just as a reporter, it was something that um, I could report it on. And so... Um, one of the things in journalism is that a lot of the work is kind of accumulative and and it comes through just doing your job repeatedly and then you learn something. Just as you as a podcaster, um, you don't learn how to how to shape a podcast new every time you every time you start. You um you build on that knowledge and same thing. As journalists, we build on that knowledge, not only our skills, but the topics we're talking about. Um, and so I, I had known quite a bit about that area be before, not as much as some, for sure, um, but at least enough to be able to comment and see the seriousness of it when we saw a, a heavy rain event. And um, yeah, so similarly, similarly um, you had the people in Washington State there in Sumas, Washington, which had been flooded in 2020, see beforehand and have their knowledge suggest that something bad was coming. So on Saturday, they had been sandbagging. And so I think on Sunday, so again, they, they saw it coming before I did for sure, um, and before a lot of others did, um, they had put out a call within the community to start sandbagging um, in case they w needed to sandbag because 
the the potential flood from the Nooksack River. So that was the first tip off on Sunday um, when that was the first tip off after I after the the highway started getting closed down because when the highway started getting closed down that suggested the seriousness of this event as somebody who's generally interested in news and as somebody who um, had a family member who couldn't travel because of those or could travel but in the opposite direction they wished to travel um, because of those highway closures I had come aware that this is something as many people had done this is something that was happening and was particularly serious. And so um, having seen the SUMAS folks um, concerned, that was kind of the tip off that something larger would um, was possible. And then essentially from there, it just started first on Twitter. And then as it became evident that it's something that really was uh, a threat um, through our, our website too, reminding people both um, telling people about what happened in regards to the landslides and the floods and mentioning the fact that there was um, this other threat across the border, which we in Canada rarely thought about. Most people probably don't know about or didn't know about the Nooksack River and its threat to Canadians. Um, and so that's something as a, as a journalist, it's something that I feel like sometimes reporters get, um, can be, we can be a little bit, we have to tell people what other people are telling us. We have to, um, we, we, but we can be using our judgment and our knowledge ourselves to be informing people. We don't always have to wait for um, authorities to tell people that, say, Highway 1 might be closed between Chilliwack and Abbotsford. We can do that ourselves because even if the, the government or the, uh, the various bodies in charge um, are hesitant to suggest that that people might want to take caution, which um, historically, and I think this thankfully has changed during the floods, um, but um, historically there's been a, a large, they've been very adverse to um, wanting to create any um, communication that might create some anxiety for people that doesn't eventually pay off essentially that that isn't um essentially um justifiable in the rear view and you can't really do that when you're talking about emergencies because you never know for sure whether a disaster is going to come and um one of the things we saw at the in during the second stage of flooding is that they were a lot more proactive about saying yes these these storms could bring a lot of water they could flood they could do this they could do that and that's to their credit that they've um, adjusted that philosophy, but um, you see it not just in emergency preparedness, but in a whole bunch of different fields where um, there's a lot of uh, hesitancy and barriers structurally for them to put out um, put out certain communications. And we, as as independent reporters and people who have our own knowledge, can say when we're confident, when we know um, enough, and when the facts line up and you can put a plus b plus c we can say okay actually this is something that people should be know be know about that some people should uh care about and be at least aware of if not um actively preparing and in general we have historically i think probably well, certainly um and then it's kind of inevitable just we don't 
consider the the risk of natural disasters and emergencies until they're on us because there's a lot of different things that can befall us and it's it's um you can be just waiting forever and it never comes thankfully um and when it does come it can be a shock and it can be something that um you can look back in hindsight and say we should have done this and should have done that part of it's just human nature i think um a part of it's also just um being aware and realizing there are certain things you can do to make things easier in the future than after. I'm as guilty as anybody about um, not doing certain things in terms of emergency preparedness. I know um, if we have an emergency preparedness kit um, at home, I I, I think we do, Um, but I I, I don't quite... um, it's going to need some updating probably. <laughs> so so there's a lot of um, human nature there that you're trying to overcome. And the blame is, is I think, a little bit um, something that I'm not too interested in allocating, but it's something that the facts and the knowledge need to be continually stressed. Yeah, a good example, I guess, is the earthquakes. We're always worried about earthquakes coming, and we don't. Um, we're always kind of updating people and and doing drills, um, but it hasn't come, and and we're it's always in the back of people's minds that we're we're due. That's something I commonly hear, but we haven't seen it yet. And so, uh, to the government's credit and to other people's credit, um, we warn, but we don't know if it's going to happen. Um, but what did it mean to you as a journalist to have people react so positively um, to your willingness to speak up and say, hey, uh, prepare? Because I saw people say, I evacuated as a consequence of reading this article. Um, did that mean something positive to you as a journalist? Like, um, I've made a positive impact here? Yeah, of course. Um, when, and that's one of the, <coughs> sorry, it's it's immensely gratifying. That's why somebody chooses to become a reporter is because you believe that the the facts and the your job has makes some difference even if it's incremental in in people's lives and it advances and it's meaningful um the job is i i'm not as pessimistic as some about various pay things but you're not going into it to make large numbers of money or or large amounts of money, you're going into it because um, you can make a living doing something that you see as meaningful, as lots of people do in their various other jobs. And so, um, to have that, to have that feedback, um, and we get great feedback with the current, and it's one of the benefits I think of going straight to people's email inboxes is that people can feel very um, open about replying directly to it. And it's one of the what it's been one of the I've been surprised at just how much of it has come through and how um and it is really uh invigorating and um it keeps you going and it makes you uh grateful that there are people out there who are willing to spend their time on on what you're producing and you feel good about helping them in just the same way that um anybody who has a job in any field feels good when their job leads somebody else to um have a good experience whatever it is that's fantastic. What were those early days like? So you did the reporting of this is a risk that it's coming. Um, w- did you have conversations with? I know you have a coworker, Grace Kennedy. Did you guys go through and say, okay, like this looks like it's going to be serious. We're going to be working long days. This is going to be uh, like a lot of information gathering. What were those initial days like of trying to prepare for this, or say maybe our regular routines are kind of gone right now because we're going to try and get information out as best we can. So the the rain and the the landslide started on the sunday 
And on Sunday, I was prepared. I was preparing to uh, welcome another reporter on the Monday. Jothi Graywall was starting with, with us on the Monday. And so on Sunday, I was just had been thinking about that and excited to welcome a new person to the team and all the things that that brings with it um, and get to work with Jothi. Uh, and then the landslide started. And so late Sunday, I believe I, I wrote a a story for our our website and then included that in the newsletter. So that was a little bit of work. And then from there, it was just, it's just, and this is what generally happens when new things happen in journalism is just, there's not much time to plan, especially when it's something that large, you're just trying to create and, or, and, and react to the events that are happening because that's kind of the job. So uh, on the Monday, we would have been, I would have been, monitoring again what's happening, um, evolving that, placing that in the context of kind of what I already knew and what we already knew and um, and figuring out what story we were going to produce because our main day-to-day is just to produce one story that we hope is very good and that is um, provides something new and provides new information to people. And so that's the day-to-day routine and I, I believe one of the one of the things is on on the Monday, I think I I, I know I, we had a story running from Grace about the Tashmi um, internment camp just uh, east of Hope, and it was one of the one of I think the best pieces we produced. It was um, uh, Grace had gone out to Tashmi, we'd done research, and it was. Um, I think one of the it, re, it remains one of the the best pieces that we've uh, published, and we were excited for that to come out. And then the um, the slides hit, and we very quickly had to kind of just for it was it had to already been published. And but normally we'd spend time on promoting it and that type of thing. But we we turned mostly just to figure out what had happened, where um, landslides were coming down. Um, what the traffic situation was it was that was mainly a agassi and hope situation and then just re- reacting to that um trying to cover um some news conferences and jothi was a great help on those um especially in the early days and she got thrown into the fire it's like starting a job and then suddenly um the building's burning down around you and she just started grabbing water and started throwing water in places which was immensely helpful and she coming from langley advanced times she knew um how to do that and she could um react so she was immensely helpful grace as always is uh is kind of helps keep everything together in various ways both seen and unseen and and so on monday we basically just covered what had happened um and then by tuesday or and by monday we were watching the highway and i was especially watching the highway and the nooksack flows and it was pretty clear that there was water coming across the border um and my mind turned to what had happened in 1990 when the highway was closed down uh, because of a Nooksack-related flood. And so I spent some time writing about that and that those threats and kind of incorporating in some of the, uh, the documents from the city of Abbotsford that had been prepared in case of a Nooksack flood and just kind of did our jobs that day and covered it on a more breaking news basis. And then on the Tuesday, I believe, we woke up and uh, Tuesday was the big day where 
things had obviously happened. The highway had been closed down the previous night at 5 p.m. without really any warning from authorities, even though we had kind of suggested that it might happen. And so on the Tuesday, we Grace and I, we, we started, we usually meet around 9.15, and um, we said, uh, I suggested that we do a story on kind of how the, the Nooksack River relates to the geography of the region and especially the draining of Sumas Lake, which occurred 100 years ago, potentially this year, um, but uh, a century ago. And people didn't, lots of people knew that a lake had been there and a lot of people didn't know a lake had been there. But because a lake had been there, it related to the geography of the region and created some significant particular threats regarding the Nooksack River that uh, people didn't realize and created additional risk in um, the flood that was occurring because Sumas Prairie, as we we did in the, in the future story, and I, if I would have done it again, I would have roped it all into one, is kind of split in two by a dike. And that dike um, was, and it hadn't breached yet, but it was in the, it was, the water was starting to come up probably Tuesday morning um, towards it. And so the Tuesday was really the day in which uh, most things took place. And I, I could continue walking you through <laughs> Please, kind of that because, uh, yeah. So, so the first thing in the morning I said, we should said to Grace, we should do a story on uh, <clears throat> Sumas Lake and how it relates to the, relates to Nooksack flood. And maybe you can take one part of it, Grace, and I can take another. And, <clears throat> And there's been a lot of research done on on Sumas Lake, to a lot of people's credit. Um, but one recent book, Chet was called uh, "How We Lost the Lake," and I, I believe I got that name right by Chad Ryman. And so I I had read, read it and written about it two or three years ago, and it talked about the lake as a just the lake that had been there and its place in the culture of the region and in the history of the region. And it was, it's a really fascinating book. Um, it's been now lots of people have fortunately come across it as they've hopefully come across the various other writings on Sumas Lake. But luckily that Grace, that book was already on Grace's desk at the time. And so I said, Grace, can you kind of talk about, uh, write a little bit about the history of the lake. I'll talk about the geography of the region that essentially created the lake in the first place and refills it every now and then. Um, now, and together we kind of just mushed those pieces together in something that I think that held up. And then at about two o'clock, three o'clock, somewhere around two or three, um, the city of or the city of Abbotsford would have held a press conference. I think probably early afternoon. Um, shortly after that, uh, the mayor went up in a helicopter to survey the region. And then shortly after he got um, out of that helicopter, I spoke to him, and I remember that that talk because um, he was clearly um, he saw the water swamping over the dike for a large, large portion. Suggested that the dike. Um, could fall within an hour or so. And I remember just, we have an internal chat and I just wrote, it's bad. Um, as I was talking to him, just to the, to, the, to Joe, to the, and uh, Grace, because it was clear that this flood, which was already clearly very bad in Abbotsford and the close down the highway, which is a key 
um, artery between for for lots of people. Lots of people were suddenly stuck in one community or the other, um, and suddenly this was going to get worse potentially. And then, of course, the dike broke and the water started started to flood into Sumas Prairie, which then created the led the water to rise there. And then later that evening, the Abbotsford put out a, its release, warning people that there could be catastrophic damage because it expected Barrowtown pump station to have to close and which would um, leave the prairie underwater for weeks, if not months. So um, so when that came out around seven, we had to go back to the story and revise it. And then, um, but then we published it the next morning and it's probably the the most read thing I've ever produced. It's, uh, it, it was a longer story, but it, um, I think it put it into co- context kind of the, the moment that we were in and the reason we had got there without like, I think one large issue with um, with any disaster coverage is trying is trying to both contextualize it for the larger public um, and talk about the reasons and the factors that could go into a disaster without minimizing the threat and the kind of the human level costs to um, that that poses to real people in the moment and. That's always something that you can probably do better. Um, I think in the in the moment, then it was useful because it's just useful in showing like what could happen. That was the the point of the story it wasn't really to show why this had happened because it hadn't happened yet, really when we'd started writing it, um, but to talk about what could happen, what were the factors causing this, and um, why a river from the United States that normally flows into the Pacific Ocean near Bellingham was suddenly flooding towards um flood flooding Abbotsford and then flowing into the Fraser River. Um yeah. Wow, that is a that's a lot to take in. So when you're developing these stories and trying to communicate it, um what steps are you taking to try and um, make sure that it's coming across. Do you guys go through readings? Uh, like when you're putting a piece like that out, I imagine that there's probably a sense of pressure when you're putting a piece like that out of like, okay, like I'm hitting the release button or it's going out tomorrow morning. Um, what, what process did you have during those moments to kind of go through and make sure that you were happy with the piece? Yeah, so that's kind of one of the one of the big things we are trying to do at The Current is um, produce and and frankly, we were forced to get away from this during the flood, but produce stories that take longer, um, produce fewer stories, but with like more time on each story. Because journalism, I kind of think of it, is a resource problem, right? You can either produce a lot of con- a lot of um, stories and information and a lot of um, news, or you can spend more of that time on producing less of it. And there's a variety of incentives that. Um, can tend to push news organizations now towards creating more with less time per story, um, which has, um, and it's just financial incentives in terms of like just where you're getting advertising revenue from, um, how you're, how you're kind of making something that's sustainable and it's, there's nothing nefarious about it. It's just a matter of, um, also figuring out how many reporters there are in any town and having the obligation to really cover a, a X, Y, and Z with relatively few uh, reporters. But one of the things we're trying to do with Current, and it's one thing that works in part because there are already reporters in the Fraser Valley doing 
some of the work that needs to be done too. So we think of ourselves as complementary, complementary um, in that I think we want to be adding extra contextual information. And so getting back to um, your question is that we're trying to, uh, we try and make each story go through, it'll go through at least one, maybe two, maybe three even edits, which are just not just proofing the story to make sure that all ideally it's never perfect, um, that all the the I's are in the right places and the T's are in the right places, but that um, the edits are like, just to make sure the structure is right. We're not missing major facts. We don't have facts wrong. Um, there's not a gap in the story. And so it's just a matter of revising and having other eyes on a story. So if I'm writing a story, Grace will go through it um, and and edit it extensively and and likewise and I edit all the uh, all, all Grace and Jofi's stories and and we talk about what works just stylistically writing wise talk about what works um, as a piece of journalism what if is something clear enough are people going to because we can have a understanding of something as a writer that doesn't come off to a reader who might not um, hasn't been immersed this is the first time they're reading about it so we have to make sure especially with technical complex science and data stories that we're conveying those in a way that really um, lets people in on kind of what a number means or what like a description of a of a dike is or kind of puts it in a human context so all that said like we, we yes we go through the story a couple of times um, and then ideally go through it, write it again, um, or re revise it and it goes through another edit. And at some point, it's just a matter of saying, okay, um, the story is uh, good. We're happy with it. We're confident in it. We have other stories that we could run if we weren't happy with it, but we're happy with this one and that it uh, creates something that provides information to people that's going to be useful, that it's uh, of it provides that context and information. And then it's just a matter of putting out there. It's just kind of what a reporter does in terms of at some point you have to be confident enough in, in what you've done to say, okay, here's something that uh, people can read and hopefully draw some value from. Interesting. How do you go about choosing in those early days who to um, highlight? Because you can think perhaps focusing on what politicians are saying or what government people are saying, um, but you could also go to the farmers, you could go to different communities. How do you go about in those in those days selecting uh, which voices need to be elevated and heard from um, in terms of what's most important for people to know about? Right. And, and with something like a, the, the flooding it's a matter of realizing what's already been done. And one of the things that we don't want to be doing is doubling up on on what people can find elsewhere or doubling up on what other reporters have done. And lots of reporters were doing really amazing coverage on the human element of the floods and what it was impacting local people on the ground. And it was kind of a decision we made just from the resource point of view and from a um, what we can provide extra value is that we could look at those stories in a way, but there are so many people doing so much great journalism on that. The great thing about our newsletter is that we can just say, instead of creating that information ourselves, we can tell our readers, okay, here's a great story over here on the Vancouver Sun's website. Here's the link to get to that story. Um, go read that. They've done a story on, uh, uh, 
I don't have one on <laughs> that comes to mind that I know um, there, uh, I, I believe the CBC and I know uh, Vicky at Abbots for News spoke to a saffron fa farmer on Sumas Prairie. And so we don't need to speak to that same farmer again. Somebody else, is, he's already spent his time um, with those reporters. He's busy. Um, we can send our readers towards those stories and um, let them learn about that. And we can spend our time ourselves creating other valuable information for people and relaying um, information. So we spent our time during the floods, um, both on kind of ideally giving people a pretty concise rundown of what was happening where, um, and then trying to break that into, and then trying to go deeper on certain um, contextual um, topics that we had a background knowledge of or a specific um, knowledge of that would be useful. So Grace did a, a good story on the impact on dairy farmers, and she had contacts in the dairy industry because she used to be the editor of the Agassiz, Agassiz uh, Harrison uh, Observer. Observer. Yes, I, I blanked there for a second. She'll uh, she is <laughs> watching this. She'll get very mad at that. Um, but but so she and she had done. She's very interested in all things cows and and dairy farming, and so she had that knowledge already baked into her that she could um, go forward and both go and explore what this meant for her or what this meant for the region while um, using her her knowledge already to kind of expedite that process and make it so that a story that so that we can get the story out fairly quickly so it's useful and similarly uh, I was quite I'm quite familiar with all the save Abbotsford preparatory uh, documents and uh, with uh, provincial flood plan mapping and and dike uh, assessments, and so we could write about those things, and uh, again bringing maybe new voices in or old voices on this new topic in um, on those stories while using the kind of just the the background knowledge that we had to ensure both that the story kind of reflects kind of the breadth of ideally uh, knowledge about this topic and. Just again, because journalism is a resource game where you want to create things and you have to make choices about how much time you're going to spend on it. It makes it time efficient to spend your time reporting on something that you have that uh, that knowledge of pre-existing. One of the things I really admire journalists like yourself, I think that it's an incredibly important role that I do think people underestimate sometimes the 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 impact it can have. But the other pe thing people forget about, because I think there's a challenge with people thinking, well, you wrote 250 words, so I could write 250 words on a topic like they don't appreciate the, I think, the the strategies that go into bringing in voices, but they also don't realize the contacts. And so when you were talking about the Nooksack flood, uh, sorry, the Nooksack river, you were talking about um, people you knew that you had spoken to previously on the topic and people who had researched um, the river and how it worked and, and you were bringing those voices in. Can you tell us more about the river um, and uh, some of the people you were speaking to who were, it sounds like experts in the field, uh, if I recall correctly? Yeah, the Nooksack one is is particularly unique because I when we when started the current, I was thinking, okay, we should or we talked about and what what exactly are we gonna like do and how am I gonna spend my time? Um, the current's based were were affiliated with Capital Daily and the Burnaby Beacon and part of Overstory Media Group, which is a new 
company that's based uh, that that's trying to find these new models based around newsletters um, to create a new model for journalism, uh, and ideally focused on quality content over quantity content, and creating publications that are going to speak to that and and create um, and have that as kind of like the driving philosophy and that itself being a value. But so at the start of this, I, I had been interested in a while on um, about Mount Baker and what would happen if Mount Baker exploded, which is a real possibility, but it's also a thought exercise because the it's very unlikely Mount Baker will explode during our lifetimes. Um, but it's a possibility. So again, again, you need to be, you should be prepared for them for every disaster, but there are things you prepare for more than others. But a big part of Mount Baker, of course, is that um, the Nooksack River drains from its um, flanks and it flows into Bellingham. But um, the one of the biggest dangers from a Mount Baker explosion is that it would create lahars, which are like large landslides, um, flow down the flanks of a of a volcano, um, and basically go through everything in their path. And there'd been um, a, and the science suggests that there had been a, so so getting back to the story, I thought, okay, let's look at this story. Let's spend a lot of time on this story. So I spent a lot of time looking at Mount Baker, and through that, you find you learn about um, lahars, and I'd known some of this before. Um, is that a lahar once came down from Mount Baker and right at Everson where the Nooksack floods, it had it had not gone left towards the Pacific Ocean, it had gone straight into Sumas Prairie. Um, the, the evidence suggests and there's uh, soil analysis. So through that process, which is a interesting story to write, I'd learned a lot about the Nooksack's kind of history and its path and I have Still, that that Mount Baker story is going to come out somewhere, <laughs> and there's going to be other stories on on kind of the an avulsion, which is basically when a river that used to flow one way, in this case the Nooksack used to flow into Sumas Lake, chose to flow to the west into uh, the Pacific Ocean just north of Bellingham. And so I'd been researching all that, and through that, I'd spoken to a few people, and so some of the contacts came from there, um, but. But really, during those that during that time in the in the when we were doing those flood stories, it was a lot of there weren't a lot of new contacts we were developing and and talking to. In part because we already everybody was super busy, everybody was scrambling, and we didn't need too much more. We were synthesizing information a lot of times that had already come out. So um, I know there was there had been some. In, in that one story I, I mentioned, uh, we just drew on comments that uh, the representatives of Sumas First Nation had made in a previous news story to the Vancouver Sun. And so, of course, we attribute that we explained in 2013, I think it was uh, Sumas First Nation, uh, Samath First, First Nation uh, counselors told this to the Vancouver Sun. And so, there's a lot of there there was that story was a lot of synthesizing information and throughout the flooding uh situation it's a lot of just knowing where documents are referring to 
stories and um and the historical like the, the the record of what people have said about this thing and trying to bring that all together in a in a way that informs people and lets people know what's happening because everybody's ridiculously busy during one of these events everybody's ridiculously busy normally so you need to a find people if possible to speak to uh, a certain topic but you can also just use your own judgment and knowledge to find information that had been collected when things weren't in the middle of a natural disaster right and you you all did a good job of highlighting the risks so at the beginning you said that there was a risk um that this could continue to flood and that there could be increased problems um and then you also highlighted the risk that the barrowtown pumps could fail could you elaborate a little bit more on what those pumps do um and um perhaps the positive story that so many people came out to try and prevent it from failing yeah so we we i i know for a fact we didn't actually write that the barrowtown pump station would fail because I didn't think that that was possible. We, when the city of Abbotsford announced that on the Tuesday at around 7 p.m., it was uh, a shock to me and a shock. It seemed like a shock to them that that this could get to the point. And and I'm still kind of. It's still hard to wrap your mind around how um, that flood station or that pump station that's vital for draining a huge portion of of farmland could itself be flooded and shut down um, and just it's explaining it even verbally is really hard because it's a it's a pump station that drains what once was sumas lake there's also floodgates nearby that drain what is the sumas river and sumas prairie is essentially split into two by a dike that had failed it's an extremely complex and this is one of the challenges in and this was one of the challenges for the city of Abbotsford is just explaining to people the various moving, not moving parts, but moving systems here and how they interact with one another. And so the pump station is needed because the 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 bed of what was Sumas Lake is below the level of the Fraser River. So to get water out of that lake bed, you need to pump it up. Um, two or three meters um, into and just complicating things is that it's not pumping it into the Fraser River. It's pumping it into the, the Sumas River, which is itself drained through some floodgates that stopped the water from going the wrong direction during the flood, which was something that was actually required to happen. So they needed to close the floodgates because the Fraser River had risen. Um, and as I'm saying this, I know it's extremely complex. It's extremely hard for anybody listening right now to wrap their head around it, which is one reason why, hey, I like writing and I don't like explaining things, uh, or I don't, uh, audio is not my chosen uh, medium. And then also just that's why you have these challenges of um, this pump station and then uh, people not really realizing its essential nature. There, the, the, the fact that every that you had hundreds of volunteers coming out to essentially sandbag this pump station and save it from um, flooding is both a huge success. It's a it's a tribute to all the people who came out in an emergency. It's a I, I think one of the it's a huge indicator of like power of social media because social media is I think and I don't know how many how many of those people came because they were called or 
got an email from a friend. I know a lot of people came after they saw on certain flooding Facebook groups that had been set up in part to deal with like just distributing information that people weren't getting from their authorities and which we were trying to provide. But even even journalism organizations don't have all that information. So during a natural disaster, the the Facebook groups became a huge benefit and played a huge role in how people reacted and prepared, especially in the second round of floods for the next round of um, of atmospheric rivers. So it was a huge to them. It's also an institutional failure that I'm sure I and I hope people are learning from in government about um, when you need when you have a lot of people come together to save the pump station because they are required to do so and when they're organized ad hoc by people by volunteers that's a signal that uh, there was no organization or structure to harness that power um, in place already apparently otherwise you would have had uh, calls go out for volunteers you would have had sandbagging beforehand as Sumas had done um, before the atmospheric river hit. Uh, but we didn't have that in part because it feels like kind of the the Nooksack took a lot of people by surprise. And and City of Abbotsford knew about the Nooksack River risk and they they had been preparing a little bit. Um, but the warnings didn't come for a lot of people and the the information wasn't there that allowed them to provide the help that they may have needed and when it did come it often came from these uh these social media groups and these community volunteers who again did a great job but ideally you have a system in place in which it's structured so that you don't have to rely on on or or if you are relying you're relying on them in a way that you can rely on them and not just hoping that they're there which fortunately they were in this time that's really interesting and I think it sheds a lot of light for people on perhaps the importance of community because obviously it was a, a beacon of light during uh, a very nerve-wracking time when we were hearing about the the pumps perhaps failing, seeing so many people come out, the photos. I know that a few politicians had come out and started recording all the people working and getting involved in that kind of makes you feel good that your community is able to come together. But to your point, it seems like we need to have um, perhaps more preparedness in terms of these events, uh, whether that's through something like, I know our phones are capable of notifying us if an emergency is happening. Um, perhaps that might have been appropriate here so that people were just aware of what's going on and not to scare people, but to inform them perhaps uh, prepare to evacuate in case need be during those early phases. Um, but I'm also interested to know, you did, I think, a Twitter spaces on the Nooksack River, and this didn't end up happening, but it rerouting. Um, would you be able to uh, elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. I think I posted a little bit on, on Twitter about that. And I have a story that, again, is in the works and hopefully will come out. But um, there, there's a there's a very low chance. Um, so, again, it's um, not something that people should panic about. Or, um, But there's, there's a world in which the Nooksack River, which used to flow west, or used to flow into Sumas Lake, now flows into the Pacific Ocean. Again, chooses to flow north into um, into the Fraser River, and it, that would happen through um, and through through erosion that happens over years, or through a large event. And again, 
the there's been a little bit of work done on this, um, but not much. So you have you have in various documents suggestions that the chances are very low of this happening, and and for reasons X, Y, and Z, um, which is reassuring and good to know because, but it's also very low is not zero, which is interesting. So you can have a world in which the Nooksack River, uh, because it is kind of on, you can think of it, of it kind of like on upside down plate, um, and it's right on the, on the kind of tipping point there at the very at the moment, and it chooses to go left, um, and in floods the water rises just enough so that some of that water goes north into Canada, which. And one of the reasons that it's such a complex issue to prevent the Nooksack River from flowing into Canada in the future is that it might not actually be that complex to stop the river from flowing into Canada. But if you don't do that, it has the potential to significantly increase flooding in the United States, which is a problem when the people who would need to stop that flooding from happening um, are United States officials. So um like they they generally have genuinely have a very tough problem on their hands that requires um a lot of uh incent uh a lot of deciding on what costs what and what's going to create the most benefit um but but all that being said the river flows a little bit during a flood towards canada um but because it flows that way, rivers evolve over time and they can eventually choose to go in one direction or another. And and so there's a small chance that one day, whether humans are here or not, um, we don't know, would um, a little bit of water would start flowing north and then a little bit more would start flowing north and then a current would change in a certain way. And you'd have that river take a new route, as rivers always do. And what's interesting and different about the Nooksack is usually when rivers take a different route, they're in a larger valley where they take a different route and then find their way back to the main channel or that main channel evolves in a certain different way. And the Fraser itself did this. Um, But the Fraser goes in one direction and the Nooksack's on that dinner plate and it could tip one day, maybe thousands of years from now, um, and flow back north and and refill Sumas Lake and and eventually end up in the Fraser. Right. And so the risk there would have been like, it sounds like a catastrophe if that had have happened to us. Um, when you were thinking about this, because it sounds like you're likely one of uh, the top 10 people knowledgeable on the flood systems, on what was taking place at the time, who really has like a holistic understanding of what's taking place. How? What were the things, the risks that you didn't talk about? Were there any concerns about perhaps supply chains, perhaps um, what was going to happen over the next uh, couple of years if something did get even worse, like uh, the the river flowing a different direction? What were your kind of less likely concerns of what could have happened? Well, well, I mean, the avulsion, which is if a river takes a different thing, that is like the less likely concern. It's, it's probably not going to happen. Very likely it's not going to happen. Um, but it kind of illustrates kind of the very complex nature of of that river. Uh, the 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 fact that if Barrowtown had been closed down, um, that that lake would have remained there for months on end. That seems like that would have been a higher order of problem. All of these things are things that can be kind of fixed 
by, and then we saw this with the Coca-Cola fix with a lot of money and a lot of resources, but it's a lot of money and resources to deal with any of this stuff. And, and so those are kind of, there's, there's, if there's a possibility for it, I've probably written about it because um, that's kind of the job and, and, but I think in general, it kind of just goes to show that we um, underestimate both the power and the the chances that our world just changes one day significantly and for a long time. That our that a natural disaster can have significant events, and it's not just something we see on TV. It's something that can have prolonged consequences. And the people of Lytton and Merritt and and a variety of other communities, and here in the in the Fraser Valley, the people who lived on Sumas Prairie are still dealing with this and still dealing with this for a long time. Our transportation systems that we thought are were robust and just there for us to use in perpetuity um, are at the same type of risk that all these other things are, if not more. And thinking about how um, vulnerable they are and how vulnerable our lives are for um, things to be upended. So if you commute between Chilliwack and Abbotsford, that's you you're aware that sometimes it'll snow and you won't be able to get to work or there'll be a crash but i think um and i know myself as somebody who who used to go between chilliwack and abbotsford you don't imagine the day in which that route between chilliwack and abbotsford which is 25 30 kilometers um is closed down for four months or something and that's not likely to happen but it's possible that's what happened has happened in the in the Fraser Canyon, and that's what happened for months between um, it, on the Coquihalla route, which is where people have built their lives thinking you can get from X to X to Y in X number of hours or minutes, and then that stops happening, and suddenly your life becomes much more different. Right. What was that like for you? Because you're perhaps traveling around trying to get information, going to take a look at different things, uh, perhaps meeting with different communities, uh, different leaders. Were you ever worried about getting stuck anywhere? Was there any challenges to your ability to move back and forth? And was there ever a time where you were, I'm over here, but uh, if anything happens, I could be stuck over here? So I don't, I, I, we didn't travel around too much during the flooding and, and I have significant family in the interior so i i was actually during during a considerable considerable amount of it actually in the interior and just uh just doing my work from there because we work from home and we are able to um kind of do most of our jobs from there if, if required and it, during a disaster like that um, there are things you can do in the field and there's things you can do not in the field and a lot of the choices we were making in terms of our coverage were Doing things like the stories, synthesizing um, the geography and the the history and stuff that um, we could do from our homes, and we wouldn't have to worry about getting from Chilliwack to Abbotsford. And so we weren't attending the Abbotsford press conferences because you couldn't get from A to B, but um, we could follow those along, and we could try and contact um, officials um, through other channels and. So it's a lot of just decision making that way, and as a, like again with everything, it's a matter of what you're spending your time and resources on doing. And if you're spending your time and resources on traveling during something like that, it's not always the best choice because what you're getting for that is uh, needs to be needs to pay off in a certain way. And 
if you don't see that payoff, then there's uh, there's a lot of other things you can do while you're reporting on anything really um, that are going to have a big impact. So you want to be out in the boat and and within your community enough to get a sense of what's going on, uh, while still being able to uh, create and and have the value that you're creating in your journalism that uh, is going to be there and you only have so much time to write a story. So you have to kind of pick and choose a lot there. Right. The other thing that I was interested in, um, I saw you asking questions during, uh, I think it was like a global news press conference with the government coming out. And it just got me thinking about the the challenge of asking questions in those moments, in those key moments, you maybe get one or two questions and maybe a follow up. Um, how do you go about choosing what you're going to ask? And is that ever a tough circumstance to be in? Because perhaps there's an incentive um, not to ask too tough of a question where the person's just not going to be able to respond, but you want to ask something engaging. And so just in my own head, when I heard you asking that question, I just ran a thought experiment in my own head of how, how would I go about doing that? How difficult would it be to, you want to ask this person's time, but you also don't want to make them uncomfortable. Um, you don't want to come across as too critical or one-sided. Uh, there's like, to me, it felt like there was a lot going into my own kind of perspective on how I go about asking those questions. Um, what was that process like for you? Because you only get maybe uh, 30 seconds to a minute of uh, questioning the government on their decision making. Right. And and so we we were involved in a couple press conferences. Like I could go on for, for an hour on this and, and nobody really wants to hear my rant on this. But um, the press conferences held by the government and involving government ministers are in certain cases helpful if they have information that they can provide that is new. In part there's helpful in such in in such context because you as a reporter can't get the information through normal communication channels from the government because their communication in general is very risk averse and um focused on providing information in sound bites that are often not useful and some of that same risk averseness ends up translating to uh press conferences in which sometimes and there are some ministers that are better than others, some officials better than others who will speak more candidly or not about certain circumstances. And then there are there are ministers and governments and what have you that when you ask them a question, won't answer the question and won't provide information that is actually valuable to readers or listeners or, or what have you. And so there are some circumstances in which we might be working on the story and we are looking for um, some insight into the government's thinking, say, on its long-term flood management plan or on a specific topic that we're working on. So if it's cattle during the, or the number of, yeah, yeah cattle during a, a flood or something. And so we might be able to ask a spe specific question that hopefully can get a specific answer. Um, but in general, um, and I increasingly think this, and lots of people think of this, is that these press conferences, while semi-useful, are often just exercises in which you have politicians trying to avoid saying anything that uh, they haven't pre-planned and run by staff and haven't uh, considered the political implications of. And, and I think that that's a 
major problem with kind of how governments run communications because it, I don't think it really helps them. It doesn't, people catch on. People like to see when government officials say, I don't know something, I that's not my job, but hopefully we can find you the answer to it, uh, rather than give an answer that has no relation to the thing they don't know about, but at least is an answer. Um, and so how do I, how do we come up with questions is just basically sometimes it, yeah, it's based on like, if we have a story in the works and something that we want to ask about and something we haven't seen addressed, then we can use one of those press conference times to hopefully get a question in. Um, they usually limit each reporter to one, one question and a follow up sometime. And there's only a handful of reporters called upon when there might be um, dozens on any one call. So sometimes it's a lot of luck if you're, you're, on a call and you get your name called, hopefully they're calling on somebody local regarding a local uh, event like this, unfortunately, and thankfully they did in a couple occasions, but we also didn't participate in every news conference because frankly, not all of them are useful. Sometimes we can just monitor what happens and see if anything new comes out when we don't have a question that we think is actually gonna get uh, a answer that is worthwhile and worth sharing because a lot of times it's just um, it's just people talking to try and respond to a question without actually responding to it. That is the thing I think a lot of people feel. Like we talk about how we want to increase voter turnout. We want to get more people involved in the political process. We want them to engage as a as a citizen and, and take on that responsibility. And then I watch certain... Um, question and answer periods or certain interactions and it's it's disheartening as somebody who wants people to engage more and get more involved to see that people not answer the questions and not e and pretend that they are and that's discouraging i think to some people and that's where there's this bitterness about government and politics and these challenges and so i really appreciate you being willing to kind of point that out because the other challenge at least i see is that there's certain um, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this. It feels like there's, while there's, that's going on with the politicians, there's certain people within the journalistic realm that get comfortable asking the lighter questions rather than the tough questions, even though that might not be popular or easy to do. And I'm just wondering, is that a terrain you have to kind of ride in terms of being willing to say, okay, I'm going to ask this tough question that I'm probably not going to answer, they're not going to answer, um, but it's worth perhaps your political capital to spend in asking that question? Or is it easier because you get invited back on, you get invited to ask questions again, to just ask lighter questions? Is that ever a challenge? I mean, I can't speak for to it from really because I'm not on these conferences in consistent ways. And we go when we do take part with like a specific thing in mind. And lots of people, I, I think in general, there's a lot of... Uh, you have to realize it's just well, it is a job and it's there are practicalities involved where you need an answer on x y and z and so you're looking for a comment on x y and z on, on a certain topic and you're not performing to the cameras and 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 thankfully you shouldn't be performing to the cameras your goal should be to get a a question asked or get a response to and get some information your goal is always to solicit information and if you're in a news conference every day um i mean it is a lot of work it's a lot of mental energy too and so there's going to be times one imagines that that you're trying to find um 
some way to get some information for you or your colleagues out of it. And whether it comes off as a fluffball or not, um, your job is to get more information for your news organization on certain topics. And sometimes um, you're going to ask a question in a certain way. And you're also inevitably aware that you can ask really hard, hardball questions in a news conference, but asking them in such venues is unlikely often to get any sort of useful response because of the way that people and officials are trained to answer questions. And I mean, some of this out of their own self-interest in that legitimately, if your job is dependent on kind of avoiding controversy, you're going to try and avoid giving a controversial answer. It's, it's human nature and you can't really fault people too much for some of that. Um, but yeah, so I was like, I'm fairly generous. I think we can always do better and reporters can always do better than they do in the same way that, and there, there's different qualities of reporters, just like there's different qualities of people in every profession. So it's kind of life in a lot of respects. Absolutely. And I think that it would be nice if there was a way of highlighting those politicians that you believe give those more honest answers or, or moving in that direction, that there was a benefit to uh, taking those risks. Because I do know that there were some um, political leaders, whether it's municipal or provincial, that were willing to say the harsh truth um, and, and take that risk on people. And I think that those are the voices we should uplift and, and try and make sure stay in those positions, because that is who we, we don't we want less people who are trying to be too politically strategic and we want more honesty and more um, honest dialogues. And I think that that, I guess that's my belief in the role of journalists is you, not in a bad way, but you're holding people's feet to the fire. You're saying, okay, we need the honest truth. We're trying to inform the populace on, on what's going on, on the current events. And so you've also been doing this with the decision-making regarding the recent BC budget, regarding um, the the plans to prevent future flooding. Uh, would you be willing to elaborate on that? Uh, what are you seeing from the recent BC budget that they just released? Yeah, I mean, I mean, right now it's essentially it's too hard, too early to say and too hard to get an answer to what the actual uh, long-term plans are because there is a long-term... We, we did hear in the moment of candidness that the province wants to change how they're changing... Um, how you fund essentially flood protections that, and and the sorts of structures that protect cities like Chilliwack, and but we just don't know how and when that's going to happen. And in part, that's kind of possibly understandable um, because a budget is a huge thing, and and dealing with a disaster, they're going to prioritize the things that have just happened, and there does need to be planning in place to. Um, to figure out how exactly you allocate and speed up the process to improve flood protections. And so that's the thing we tried to highlight in a recent story, while at the same time that story is basically suggesting that we don't know that it's something that we need to keep an eye on and that the current budget doesn't provide for. Um, and this kind of goes back to what politicians say, is that, or, or don't say, in that you can... What I just said, like you, you, there, there's a very good story to tell that the the provincial government or any government is taking X, Y, and Z steps, and they will get to the point where they will be spending 
all the money that's necessary to be protecting the communities that need to be protected. That includes cities and First Nations and um, all those other places that are currently behind insufficiently um, high dikes. And then all the other complicating factors that go into flood protections, which is that dikes are only one portion of the things that mitigate a flood and that you need more than just flood protections. Um, you need uh, you need wetlands and you need um, cities that are built resilient so that if water does go over the flood, the dikes, then um, there's less damage and you need all sort, those sorts of things. And then you have all the other competing interests for the public dollar, which is you need money to prepare for earthquakes and you need money for healthcare and COVID. And, and so there's all these like legitimately hard and tough decisions that government is making and is always making. And there's stories to be told candidly about how all these things come um, out and people are willing to listen. And people, I think, understand when you tell them that things aren't that easy because like I hear it myself, like it, when you say some, when you report on something, people will say, yes, but what about this? And that's a very, those are often some most insightful comments you get is like, yes, these are all things we should be considering about. It's not just one or the other. There's a million things that governments need to be spending money on. And that money is tax money. And there's only so much money that people um, want to be, be paying in taxes. And that's a whole other question as to whether the level of taxation is too high or too low. And, and you get what you pay for often. So, um, but those are long conversations that often it feels like government officials and politicians don't trust the public to have or don't want to have themselves or haven't thought out themselves or could be explaining in a more holistic way to um, show that they're both understanding um, of the challenges and the needs ahead while also recognizing and elaborating on all of the challenges they face. And I shouldn't come to me to be making all those excuses for governments. They can make those excuses themselves because those excuses are there. Um, they can, they're not just excuses, they're reasons. But uh, you ask a politician about any of these and some of them will be very candid and some of them will use, the an, use an answer that tries to move somebody on because they don't, in part because they don't have all day because they are complex topics, but also just um, I feel like the more information you tell people, the better it is. The more that you show people that you that these are complex problems that they will understand. We need to trust people a little bit more to um, trust people a little bit more with the information rather than assuming that they can't handle complexity and depth. I couldn't agree more. And that is what I'm trying to bring about with this is that I'm not going to make the assumption that we need a quick soundbite. I'm not going to assume that um, the listeners aren't capable of understanding complex issues, that they're along for the ride and they can always go back and listen. One of my, I don't want to say it's a dream, but one of my hopes is that this form of communication becomes more appealing to political leaders. Uh, this form of long form conversation of saying these are the this is the direction I'd like to take our community, our province, um, our our nation, and this is why this is how I've come to these decisions. Rather than debate platforms that are super short and you're trying to say the the harshest thing or you're trying to see if your numbers go up in that one second is 
believing that uh, we're, we're founded on the idea of a democracy and to have a healthy democracy, you need an informed populace that's able to question things for themselves and that the best ideas will win out. I think we've been really lucky so far. Like you think of, yeah, we have tr challenges with healthcare, but our health, I, you go to the doctor, your doctor is there to help you. You might wait a little bit, but you're going to get that service. You think of the challenges, I think, with the US and their teachers um, and how much their teachers make. In Canada, I think we're in a, a far different position. And I think that it's good that we're investing in teachers because they're what's going to educate our next generation. They're the people who are going to make sure we have an informed uh, young people that will eventually take on all the positions that we hold today. And that's incredibly important. And so I think that we are, we're, we're doing really well. I think we can always do better to, to your point. And so I'm just interested to know um, what your thoughts are. Do you think that it's possible that we can move in a really good direction with our, our political system just in general, that we can have more complex conversations? Do you see that uh, over your years as being a journalist that we're having better conversations? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, I think a lot of it is going to feel like things are, I, I think it's hard to compare across times in part because we we all want to have certain in-depth conversations or we all want to have this or that, but everybody also only has so much time and resources and time to spend on any one subject. And, and everybody also has a right to sometimes unplug from the serious topics and get out and just find a way to declutter your mind and do something that takes your mind away from it. And so all those things have to be there's a reason that politicians um, don't spend three hours talking to every single person they come across to explain every single issue. It's just you don't have that time. And it's the same way kind of with reporters. There are a decent number of reporters out there. And if they spent that much time on every reporter every day, um, they'd be working 6,000-hour days. Um, so like, I, I do respect like that there are confines and con uh, that there are like limits to what you can do and especially there are limits to people's attention span today and what people have the ability to kind of process. I think that you can do some of these things in, in shorter ways and there are ways to communicate things better. At the same time, I'm like also wary of expecting brilliance from every person because there are some very competent people out there and there are some people who are normal people who are trying to do their best and and but are normal people like the that um have their own challenges and their own passions and their own skills and attributes and the things that they're good at and things that they're not good at and a lot of us are not good at that well all of us are, are aren't great at some things and are better at other things and and so we all bring that to the table and some things sometimes people just aren't able to do the things we hope that they should do or could do um, at the same time, I think. So I think a lot of it comes down to like the structures we put in place and what we expect people to do and what the, the things we penalize people for doing and the things we don't penalize people for doing. So I think we, we can do a better job of not penalizing people when they give a, a contextual, but, tough answer that is kind of potentially controversial but 
you know what they're actually trying to say. I think we can give them the benefit of the doubt sometime and because we want that people to take those risks and 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 make those judgments that you know it's going to be better for me to um provide more information even if there's a chance I step on somebody's toes here or there. And I think it's the same way when we're talking about anything when we're talking about improving our society is like giving people the benefit of the doubt a little bit so that we can encourage them to take more risks and decrease the riskiness of those risks, I guess you'd say, um, is I think useful and just something to try and I think we can all keep in mind when we're kind of evaluating people and holding people to standards that whether or not we hold ourselves to that standard. And 